Welcome to SpotCast, your single point of contact podcast for the service management and support industry brought to you by HDI, where service management and support professionals belong. Smarter service, better business, HDI. On the web at thinkhdi.com. I'm your host for SpotCast, Roy Atkinson. Episode 13 of SpotCast is an interview with Chris Shagnon. Chris is an ITSM architect who designs, develops, and maintains award-winning experiences for managing and carrying out the ITSM process. Chris has a Master of Science in Information Technology and a Bachelor's Degree in Visual Communications. In addition, Chris is a PhD candidate studying information systems with a focus on user and service experience. As one of HDI's top 25 thought leaders, Chris speaks nationally about the future of ITSM, practical applications of artificial intelligence and machine learning, gamification, continual service improvement, and customer service and experience. So, Chris, you recently wrote an article about demystifying the terminology behind analytics. Why is it important for service and support people to get familiar with terms like session duration that we see in web analytics, and how does it help the service desk? The reason that I started writing that article is because a lot of people are using analytics tooling. Uh, Whether that's different popular suites, they're all pretty much the same when it comes to the metrics they're gathering. But what I found is when we give out reports for those analytics, people can get very confused as to what those things mean. So the article was my attempt at kind of helping people figure out why those are important. So one of the things you mentioned there was session duration. If we're looking at the number of people at our website, that harkens back to, you know, the 90s when we had hit counters on every single website and we were very, very, you know, gung-ho about letting people know exactly how many visitors we had had. Uh, But quantity and quality are very different things. So things like session duration kind of help us to figure out exactly where people are spending their time. If we see that someone's spending three seconds on our homepage but five minutes on a support article, maybe that's a good thing. People are clicking through, they're finding the articles they need. Uh, But let's say we're looking at those same analytics and we see we have a brand new support article we've posted and they're spending 25 minutes on an article. For a five-step article, we probably don't want to see that type of thing happening. The other really handy thing that analytics start to show us is the paths that people are taking. So we can start to see exactly how somebody got from point A to point B, C, D, all the way through Z. So we can see if the intended flow is working or if people are getting really lost. Does somebody click on an article and then work their way through to five more articles before they finally submit a support ticket? Or what if no one ever submits a support ticket? We can probably reasonably assume that they've done uh, their own self-service there. Right. That makes perfect sense. In in uh, the modern systems, do you see the ability to track people from, let's say, article to article? If they're article hopping to, to try to get more information on a particular topic or if they're puzzled by what they're reading? With modern systems, luckily you can track all of those clicks. You can see exactly where somebody started, whether that was a referral through Google or if they were doing some sort of search uh, in your knowledge base. Or if um, one of the things we see with students uh, being in higher ed is they'll actually share things on social media, um, which can make you feel pretty good because it shows that people are using it and they say, oh, here's the answer you're looking for. Um, But luckily, because of that type of thing, you can see how they were referred there and you can see exactly when people are hopping. You can see how many people end their sessions on one page or how many people continue looking for more knowledge. Speaking of which, self-help is becoming increasingly important. Everybody's trying to shift left, get as much off the plate of the service desk at level one as possible. And we've just done some research that indicates that end users are asking for self-help 
and yet some organizations are still having uh, trouble when it comes to adoption. They're not getting good adoption rates. What, in your view, needs to happen to make it work? One of the biggest shortcomings that you see with a lot of self-help portals and websites is that there's a lack of letting people know that it's there. We tend to try and think of how can we help our users, which is exactly what we're supposed to be doing. Um, but an example of where we kind of go wrong is if somebody submits a support ticket to our service desk, we then help them, but we'll copy and paste the answer into the email because we want to be very helpful. This is very much the you can lead a horse to water type thing, but we can actually start to say, well, let's send them a link to the exact article they need. We can say, here's the article that I'm pretty sure will help you. Then we get those analytics that we were talking about earlier, but then we also start to expose them to this site. Um, one of the shortcomings we had with the launch of our website is it was timed with the marketing department's release of their brand new website. So we were playing second fiddle to that. They did a really great overhaul of the entire university website, but in order to not detract from that, we didn't really have a launch date. It just kind of went live and we said, okay, it's there. Um, so advertising and letting people know about it, whether that's through support tickets, posters, advertising, different things, really can help change how people see it. I like the idea of sending people links because we do get used to what we click on, right? We get used to going to, oh, that, that was helpful. Maybe I'll even bookmark this because I, I can see things that will help me out in the future instead of copying and pasting into a response. Why do you think it is that more people don't take that approach and try to encourage their users directly to get into the site so they can see what's available? I think a lot of that comes down to conditioning. Uh, over time, a lot of service desks and help desks want to be very helpful to people. and They want to go out there and they say, I need to send them the exact answer they want. That creates some knowledge siloing issues and you don't necessarily get feedback from the users about that. Um, and you might end up with users who know something and users that don't know the answer to that because of it. Um, but by sending out those links, we start to see a lot of benefits there. Beyond just the fact that we can track it with analytics, one of the things that's a really big benefit for us in higher education is accessibility. We start to see we can control the format of the content and we can control how accessible it is. You don't necessarily get that when you're sending out an email that's formatted by that technician at the time, but also sometimes people really like creating PDFs or other documents. Um, one of the most accessible versions of any document is to create those you know, knowledge articles out there in the web. Speaking of higher education, you are a doctoral candidate. And can you tell us a bit about what you're working on and how it's related to service and support? I have been very lucky to be in the position that I am in. I started working at my current university with the intent of just working there. But because of their generous benefits, I was able to get my master's degree there um, and then continue on. Uh, once I met my current advisor, I knew that she was the one for me. You know, it was love at first homework assignment, I guess you could say. But she was really great and inspiring me to want to learn more. So through the PhD program that I applied for, I am able to start working on user experience and service experience. Um, and with my background in IT, I've been able to apply that as an end-to-end, -end. how do we keep IT moving forward? What sort of things can we do to say, how is future technology going to impact IT? A huge area of interest for me has been in helping those tier one workers. We did some preliminary studies where we found out that if a student worker worked for our service desk, from the moment they got to the campus as a freshman all the way through their graduation four years later, they would have the equivalent of about six months of full-time experience. That makes it really difficult to train those people and really difficult to have consistency across the board. So helping those people do their job better really works with that shift left mentality of saying self-help and tier one are the way that we should be focusing and we won't need to escalate it. 
So I've been looking at technologies like machine learning uh, and artificial intelligence in order to say, what are the things that we can do here in order to make their jobs easier? Uh, specifically, we've been taking all of that historic data that we typically don't use within our organizations and using machine learning practices on it to turn that into suggestions for those tier one workers. So a new ticket comes in and we can say, based on history, this is where this ticket should go. We then take it a step further and use some optimization techniques um, from some mathematics in order to say, here's the exact person that should be working on this ticket based on their skill sets and the skills required to fulfill it. Uh, preliminary studies have shown really good results on that. We've been running an experiment since the fall with the service desk, uh, implementing this program where we run it every single morning. And the ticket time to close has been much shorter. The quality of the responses, because people know what they're talking about, has been much better. And we see a satisfaction among those people who are doing those tickets much higher, as well as obviously from the users who are having their requests fulfilled. That's all awesome. And that's the kind of things that I think we all need to be looking at uh, these days. Obviously, the technology isn't going to solve all the problems, but it certainly can assist us. And one of the ways it can assist us is in accessing a lot of information, rapidly analyzing it and putting things where they belong, as it were, as you said, pointing it right to the right analyst or right to the right group of people to work on a specific issue. That's awesome. Everywhere we turn, we see articles and studies and conference sessions and etc. about artificial intelligence. And we know a good deal of it is hype one way or the other. Either, you know, we're all going to lose our jobs or we don't, won't have to work anymore. So what are some of the areas where you see AI being a real help and where not? So one of the things that I want to address there is replacing all of our jobs. You know, machines are here to help us. Um, and one of the early areas of research that I was looking into is the concepts of automation versus augmentation. Automation is where we use that same data I was talking about. And because we've achieved a certain confidence level, we can say, okay, replace all the tier one techs with this program. Augmentation is where you say, well, no, I can't replace all tier one techs because there's going to be somewhere where the machine goes wrong or I can't get to a confidence level that I'm comfortable with. So through augmentation, we provide that data to the techs. And that's been really beneficial because we don't change workflows. We augment them with new things that help people do their job quicker, better, faster, all of those things. But we don't really need to worry about the accuracy of the program or have somebody who's checking in on the program every so often because we have those constant checks and balances and it gets better over time. The other things that I think we're going to start seeing a lot more is this big data analysis. AI and machine learning are the new it words. But they're really just an extension of all that talk about big data that we had from a few years back. Where I don't think we're going to see it is in fully replacing people or replacing their jobs. We're going to see it start to make things a lot better for people. And we're going to start to see a lot better algorithms that, you know, do sound a little more human-like. I'm sure we've all had some of those customer service interactions with various companies where it's just, uh, you know, call and answer type of bot. Where you type one thing and then it answers with the same message every time. Those are some of the old ways of doing it, and I think we're going to see a lot more convincing um, things coming out of that. I think the other place that we're going to start seeing it is not necessarily in chatbots like that, but in vigilant information sent out to our teams. We're going to start seeing our algorithms learn how to help IT and augment their jobs rather than just to our customers directly. So an example of that is if we have a server that's hard drive is getting full all the time because it keeps getting these Windows updates, things that are going on or something like that, where an update folder just keeps getting more full and more full. We can start to use machine learning to say, well, every time someone has intervened for this, they've gone through and deleted that update temp folder, and that solved this issue. 
the machine learning can then start to you know, reach out to people and say, hey, do you want me to do that same thing this time? They can get more intelligent over time and they can start making those suggestions so that people are more you know, approving rather than thinking and solving every problem from the beginning. And I think that's been the focus of a lot of people who are talking about AI, including myself, is get that rudimentary repetitive stuff gone. Let the machines do that work and have people focus on other things that machines are not very good at, such as creativity, empathy, all the human qualities that we have that we can bring to the table that the machines can't. Do you, do you see that? Absolutely. I will say that we are working currently on some companion robots that are using empathy, but that's a little preliminary to talk about too, too much. Um, so once I've taught those machines empathy, I think we're in for world domination is the next step. Um, <laughs> but yes, there are so many skill sets that people have that a robot or a machine really can't have, because for every rule you define or every process you've fully mapped out, there will always be exceptions. There will always be people out there who don't necessarily think the rules apply to them, or maybe they don't apply to them. It's one of those things where, let's say you map out your perfect IT process, and then you have a C-level executive call in. Well, do they necessarily get the same treatment? Some would argue, yes, they get fully the same treatment. But we all know in the real world that C-level is going to get white glove, you know, concierge level treatment when they call in. You could start to say, okay, well, let's map out processes for each individual person in our organization. Nobody's going to have the time to do that. So those little nuances are where we're going to start to see people have a lot more impact than the machines. Also, once we free up the time of those people to work on things, people are going to be able to do a lot higher quality and transformative work. We call that the axe sharpening moment in our uh, organization. We spend a lot of time you know, putting out fires or what we say is hitting that same tree with our dull axe. But when we have these times where we can go ahead and say, how can we do this better? How do we improve this process? That's an axe sharpening moment for us because what might have taken a thousand hits before, we can now get done in two or three. And that's so important. I think, you know, efficiency, effectiveness, all of that stuff can go up simply because we have the right tools applied in the right places in the right way. And that that's part of the human process here, too, right? Figuring out which things we can work with, which things we can automate, where the data is going to help us most, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so I've been thinking that some of the forward-looking skills that people in the service desk should be looking at are things like systems design, process design, and understanding how these things work together so that they can start to work better with the machines because I think that the future is going to be machines plus human. And, and I'm seeing a lot of success around different industries with that. Ten minutes away from my house here in South Carolina is a, the largest BMW production facility in the world. And they've doubled their workforce since they started heavily automating because they found that machines alone were not going to be able to do the things that they wanted to do. And machines plus humans do it much better. And so that their production levels are fantastic and everything's working well because they have that, that interplay between machines and people. Or is that what you're seeing in your studies as well? Absolutely. Um, so those quote unquote soft skills are becoming increasingly important. Because as I had mentioned, defining these processes and procedures is very important. Project management skills are key to success right now. One of the first things that we do when we have somebody new onboarded to our service management team is we discuss requirements gathering, things like that. It's very easy for somebody to slip into very specific technical requirements. You know, If you said somebody 
was helping you design a form, you could say, okay, what should this form look like? But that starts to get far too down the road from where it needs to be. When you're thinking about designing a form, you should say, what is the goal of this form? What is going to come out of this? And that's one of the approaches that we always try to focus on, because if somebody's designing the functional requirements for something, we can start to say the user stories for this are fulfilled by this. But if we go way too nitty gritty, we say this is an input box, it's going to be 12 pixels tall, we're going to have three other input boxes, um, and it might meet the need, but is it the best way to do that? Um, to give an anecdote, we had an engineer come in, they wanted to make a software request form uh, for our self-service portal. Their preliminary design included, it was like 300 radio buttons for the room. Um, because in their mind, they said, well, here's the 300 rooms that someone could have software installed in, and they'll just check off the one that they wanted in, right? But that's kind of what I focus on a lot is that is a solution, but is it the best solution? Those soft skills and being able to do things like user experience or service experience design, as well as requirements gathering, you could say, is that what's best for the user? How will a user find the right room? What if a room that they need isn't there? What sort of paradigms can we use to make this a much better thing for them? That's actually very similar to something that Phyllis Drucker said on, on another episode of the Spotcast podcast. She was talking about how a service catalog that she has seen, uh, you'd go in and make a software request and you'd get a drop down with all 200 choices on it, which is, of course, impossible to navigate. Not looking at it from the end user's perspective is one of the flaws in approaching this stuff, to, to my mind. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Um, so that gets back to empathy, which you had mentioned earlier, is it's very important for us to start to see things through our users' eyes. A lot of times in IT, as technical people and engineers, we focus on, does it meet the need? Is it what needs to be done? But if we start to use empathy to say, what are our users doing? What are the personas of the different groups that we support doing here? What will they need in order to request this in the best way they can? Um, some of that comes from the design phases, but a lot of it comes from incorporating feedback. I find it's very important that we get some stuff out into the hands of our users as soon as we can. Because when we're designing those experiences, we might think that 300 checkboxes is the way to go. We say, well, yeah, it's a great paradigm for this. 300 checkboxes, they can use the find feature of the keyboard. Then we put it in the hands of the users and they go, I don't know what find feature is. Where is that even? Things like that start to appear. Um, so you don't know what you don't know is really important there. So that, that sounds to me almost like a DevOps approach, right? Minimum viable product and get it to rapid and multiple feedback loops so you can make iterative improvement. That's very much DevOpsy to me. Uh, would you agree with that? Yes, so that's following that DevOps or Scrum or Agile mentality. Um, I know that most organizations, especially where I work in higher ed, we're not able to do full Agile or Scrum. We do the Scrum butt, where we incorporate the best practices that we can. When you start to follow those methodologies, they say things like, Take your team of six to nine developers, which is a great, perfect world scenario. However, my team is two, so things like that don't apply. So we start to say, how can we stretch that out? How can we use these concepts? And what is the core concept that this is getting at here? So when we're looking at the DevOps type things, we say, let's get that minimum viable product out there. Let's get it in the hands of our users. Um, the other thing to note there is user feedback is great, but you don't always have to use it all. I know that might be very controversial. Um, but you have to think about who the target user is, and if 90% of the users loved it or they had positive feedback about it, you can listen to what that other 10% say, but maybe they're an exception. You can try and do what you can, but you can never please everyone. 
And that is a truth that many of us have come to deal with many times over the course of our careers. And uh, speaking of careers, where do you see yourself with what, you know, all the things that you're learning through your studies and the different components of it, where do you see yourself going after you complete your course of studies? I guess that would be, you know, getting your doctorate. What field and what type of work do you hope to be doing? So I don't think I'll ever be done learning. I'm definitely getting the degree. My advisor would not be happy if I didn't finish that out. Um, but I think I'm going to be continually learning. There's always new things happening in IT. As far as what I want to do after I finish my PhD, a big portion of that for me will be continuing to work in ITSM. I've had the great opportunity to start speaking around the country, to be invited to a lot of different events, to start kind of help shaping ITSM. And that's a niche that I'm really happy to start to enter right now. So the benefit to me there is I can say, well, here's some things I found in my research. Here's some things that we've tested or studied, and here's how other organizations can use them. I see a very entrepreneurial mindset about how I want to approach service management for all organizations. Um, and I start to see that when I go to different user groups for various ITSM softwares, in which we start to say, here's the sharing of the ideas, and here's how we all make the industry better. Um, it's not a very good capitalist mindset. I'm sure that's not going to make me the most money in the world you know, sharing everything for free. However, it's what I really enjoy doing. And that's how we all learn, right? And, and I think that that's one of the reasons that you're involved with the organization that I work for, HDI. And one of the reasons that a lot of us are involved in different organizations or just ad hoc groups where we can discuss these issues and try to make it better for everybody as much as possible. Um, knowledge sharing, both at, the, at that level and also at the level inside the organization is, is so important. Getting back to knowledge sharing a little bit, one of my recent contentions or recent conclusions after looking at a lot of stuff about forthcoming technologies, including AI and machine learning, is that organizations really need to get their knowledge and data organized in such a way that it's going to make it easier for them to feed the machines as we go forward. Can you talk about that aspect of it a little bit? What, what do people need to do to prepare for the coming technologies? So one of the biggest things I've seen that helps people shift how they're thinking about their knowledge and self-service is asking the question, how is this related? A lot of times the tooling or the initial way that you roll things out is feature by feature by feature. Um, but that does us a disservice because that's not necessarily how users are browsing our content. So an example of that is everything on our self-service portal is 100% interrelated. From the service catalog, you can get to knowledge articles or what we call actions, which are part of our request catalog, but also hyperlinks. We've combined them into one concept. But the idea is everything that you can do, there are no dead ends. We've tried to work with how the users are browsing and how they want to use the site. Commonly, what you'll see is someone will launch their knowledge articles, and then they go down the path of knowledge articles, and that's a dead end. You have to back to the homepage, and then you can view the service catalog. From there, you can back up and view the software request catalog. From the get-go, we realized everything in IT is related. So somebody might want to start in a knowledge article and then realize that they want to look at a room or location to have a piece of software installed from that knowledge article. And then from there, they want to view the software catalog to see what's already in that room. Those are all different transactions that are you know, part of the same process. If we tried to silo them out too much, our users might get lost on our site, or we're just going to see tickets getting created increasingly from it. That's tremendous. I, I love that the view of that as being all interrelated, because that's how we work. 
things are all related to each other, even if there's a jump in between. If we're making the, the jump from looking at something on a website to typing something in Microsoft Word, there's some mental process that joins those two things together, and that's the kind of thing you're, you're trying to emulate, right? Absolutely. And then as far as preparing things for AI and machine learning, I'm a big fan of separating things into separate attributes or rows or columns or whatever you want to call them for when you're doing things. A lot of the times we'll say, oh, well, this knowledge article can be one big box. The way that we started trying to think about that is saying, well, what are the little boxes that make that up? So from our news postings, we have a lot of little attributes. So what is the benefit of this change in the news post? What is the impact to me? Little things like that, whereas we could just make one big description box and let anyone put whatever they want. But when you start to get stuff for machines, this process of labeling all of your data really makes it helpful. So you can look for trends, you can look for changes, consistencies and inconsistencies, and that's where the machines start to excel really well. So categorization and labeling, super important. Absolutely. What else can you tell us about what you see as uh, coming down the road over the next few years that we're not even looking at yet? Is there anything on your radar that, that the rest of us in the, in the field should know about? So we've started a very far down the road of the shift to cloud. But what we're starting to see is that shift to cloud has changed our transactions with our users. So while we're going to continue offloading things into cloud environments, I do think we're going to see a return to having some things locally and we start to use the cloud for what its benefits are. That's the scalability or the computing power for things like that. If you were to try to set up a server on your own organization's campus and say, okay, let's try to run some really deep optimizations in AI, you know, machine learning, different algorithms, that's probably not the most efficient use of that. That's where we're going to start to see all of that stuff shift. But I do think we're going to start to see certain simpler things return back home. The world is greatly interconnected, but I do think we've started to be a little spurned by the lack of control that SAS has provided for us. An outage is something that we no longer can control, and our users' tolerance for that stuff is going away very quickly. And in terms of uh, that, I think that harkens back to, to some things you said earlier uh, about looking at the goal first. So making that choice between something local and something in the cloud would be based on your assessment of how each of those things helps you achieve the goal. Absolutely. Formerly, when we were assessing whether or not to go to the cloud, we just said, is it cheaper to run the bare metal server or to go to the cloud? That was a big driver behind it. But now I think we're starting to think a lot more about how does this modify the user experience or the customer service impact of this? We're also starting to see, because we've outsourced so many things, we have our sysadmins who sit there, and they've become business roles now. So rather than sitting there and patching things or running updates or configuring settings, they're now acting as a liaison to the customer service rep in the cloud, which has required some of those shifting skill sets. Um, but then we have somebody who has you know, years of database experience, years of server management experience, picking up the phone and saying, why is this down? Um, so I think that is a huge impact of that there. And I would like to thank you ever so much for taking the time to talk to me today. And I look forward to seeing you very soon at a conference or elsewhere. Absolutely. Thanks again. And have a great day. You too. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more about HDI, visit us on the web at thinkhdi.com and see Support World for great content. I'm Roy Atkinson, your host for SpotCast. Have a comment or question? Just tweet with the hashtag SpotCast, S-P-O-C-C-A-S-T, 
We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, take care.